also means planets around white dwarfs, black holes, instable systems, and much more in the second half of the episode of Exoplanets. Welcome! Today we have another more exciting news to enlighten. We will start with Jakob, who has visited the EAC. He will tell us more about what it was and what he found there. I was at the International Astronautical Congress in, and this year it was in Bremen, Germany. And this is the largest space conference in the world. So it was really a privilege to be there and meet all the great scientists and the cool. people that work in the space industry. Uh, there were hundreds of talks and of course I did not attend all of them. Uh, I did attend a few and I have some exciting conversation with some of the scientists and, uh, and professionals. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about one conversation or one project I, that I was talking one, with one of the scientists. It's the Eden project and it's, um, it's basically a project that investigates how do we produce food on another planet. Uh, either on the moon primarily, either on the moon, Mars or in orbit as well. How did they study this and where is the study conducted? Well, they study this by basically they have two big chipping containers, which um, you can imagine is the size of a trunk of a big chipping truck. So inside this, uh, this space they built a hydroponic base uh, where they can grow plants and hydroponics is growing plants without soil. So they just grow in water and in this water they have a nutrient solution. So they have no soil, no dirt. The experiment is conducted at the South Pole. So they placed it far from anything else to simulate the, the isolation that would be experienced on the planetary surface. So in that way it's, it's hard to get a lot of different people in there. Maybe there's only one person uh, working on it at any one time. Um, one fun thing that I started thinking about now. Have you seen the movie Martian? I have seen where he grows potatoes from, not from his poop, but <laughs> but Martian dirt mixed with his uh, feces. Mm, do you think that would be possible? Because then you have the dirt. Uh, why are they focusing on actually doing it without earth or dirt in any case? Why don't they do or test it as he did it in the movie? Or is that too much of I, I don't know the exact reason why they choose hydroponics over uh, using soil, uh, soil itself. But uh, hydroponics is very effective. And soil has weight. <laughs> and if you don't have a soil, it uh, might be less weight. That's uh, just a guess. But... I know this technology is definitely needed if you want a, uh, a base on the moon or Mars mm -hmm. or elsewhere uh, since it's extremely expensive to use a rocket. Every kilo costs a lot. Would this method mean that there will be less mass on the rocket, therefore easier? Well, in the long run, if we, say we have a base on the moon, uh, if we do have... Uh, the ability to grow our own food there. We don't have to transport food from Earth. And obviously that will be cheaper. Uh, however, in the beginning, of course, it will cost money to develop this technology because this, uh, well, the capsule that would produce the food 
obviously have some weight and you have to transport it there and it's obviously it's not free to to develop these technologies in the first place but in the long run definitely we will this will be necessary to to live long term on another planet so in other words we would need water nutrients and some seeds to actually make this work yeah so you and you also need a capsule where you keep all this that is pressurized mm-hmm. uh, with a, a ventilation system and uh, right temperature maybe yeah right temperature and all the light uh, in this in the Eden project is controlled like which wavelength of light is better for light and what day and night cycle because on uh, moon, uh, the moon for example the day and night cycle is not on earth in, in one day on earth of course we have well, let's, let's say around 20, uh, 12 hours of daylight and 12 of night and on Mars and the moon it's not the case it's very different so here the, what they're doing is that they're of course they're growing everything inside but they're controlling the light to simulate the day and night cycle yes and that is very important as also Melvin mentions in the interview, that life is very dependent on the different cycles. Yeah, and and this project is a project by the DLR, which is the it's a German space agency, more or less, our aerospace agency. They also do airplanes and stuff. It's called the Deutsches Zentrum für Luft und Raumfahrt. That's uh, that's how you get the <laughs> abbreviation there. Yeah, I memorized that for some reason. <laughs> uh, um, but we also talked about some different products. We have a Chinese product called the Moon Palace that actually actually they came a lot further than the, the Eden product. So it's we, the same, but... Kind of, yeah. Well, to say, to talk a little bit more about Eden product, what they've done so far is they grew, they grew cucumber, they grew tomatoes and lettuce, and a, a lot of other different plants. What they have not uh, done yet is grow corn and wheat, which is, of course, very important because basically what you make is everything, cereal, bread, and yes. taco bread. and. I don't think <laughs> probably many would not be satisfied with only vegetables. No, <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> the, the, what the Chinese have made in the Moon Palace project is to have this enclosed area with that grows food, and they have connected it to to a research area where humans stay for a prolonged time without exiting here to simulate a Mars base. So they're also researching the human psychology at the same time and have everything kind of in a closed loop. Like the air that the humans breathe out is what's absorbed, absorbed by the plants. And actually in this... And these um, these modules, fifty percent of the food that the crew eats is produced also inside the environment. That's great. Fifty percent is a good number. It is a good number. It is a good number. However, I am I don't know if they use hydroponics or if they use some kind of soil. Okay. And one interesting fact, as you mentioned earlier, can we use Martian soil or lunar soil to grow plants, or can we? extract the nutrients from there. We would need to transport less. Yeah. So perhaps we can extract nutrients from lunar soil, (laughs) mix it with the water and use hydroponics, just like the Eden product is doing. 
So mm -hmm. this is one of the many technologies needed for a base on another planetary surface. In the future, maybe we'll explore more, for example, power. How do we get power? Um, or rocket fuel. Uh, and a fun futuristic idea is that, for example, if we want to travel to Mars, we can use the moon as a station for resupply. So we don't have to take everything from the beginning. Because again, we want to have as little mass as possible um, when we travel. Yeah. Um, but um, could we use the moon as a base where we could go have food being produced there and then go f without any food to the moon because it takes only three days. So that's the matter, take it from the moon and continue to Mars. It's not maybe very efficient. Yeah, well, of course, if we go to the moon, we need to bring some food for the trip, at least. Uh, yeah, so we can stay three days without food. <laughs> it is possible. It is possible, although not recommended. Uh, no. Definitely, we can have a, a base on the moon. Uh, that's theoretically possible. The question is, how do we get there? Of course, we'd have to develop a lot of technologies. So one interesting technology is in-situ research utilization, ISRU is the abbreviation and it's basically using the resources of where you are so if you are for example on the moon one resource that's very useful is water and in the both north and south pole we have found that there is a lot of water on the poles of the moon as not is liquid, on mars right? not liquid though no it is frozen yes. so this would have to be collected in some way maybe Robots go collect them, or humans go collect them in buckets and bring them back. Uh, I don't know what technology will be used. I would, I would put my money on robots. I would prefer that. Too. Yeah, so if we send humans to Mars, we don't, or to the Moon, we don't want them using their time just to go get water in buckets. Um, maybe long distances as well. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think I put my money on robots. So, and then we have to uh, melt the water and then it can be used for the plant we talked earlier and for the, for the crew to drink. And it can also be used to split into both hydrogen and oxygen. That's what water is made of. So if you split water up, you get those two components, which is also conveniently rocket fuel. And so you can put that in a rocket if you have a rocket that uses oxygen and hydrogen. One other fuel that people been talking about a lot to use is methane and that can also be harvested from uh, the lunar or from Martian surface using in-situ research utilization. So yes, you can have a base on the moon and use it as a waypoint to fuel your rocket and pick up food, yeah. yeah. So I think before we can go to Mars we should figure out how to produce food. And not only how to produce food but how to process it. For example, even if you collect wheat or corn from your aeroponics bay or from where you're growing your crops, how do you make this into, how do you make some pasta, how do you make a sandwich in space? That's another technology you have to, maybe we should try to build a sandwich maker. <laughs> the first space toaster. Yeah. Well, I will leave that to you, who knows the engineer part of things. I myself don't know much about how things work. Well, I suspect <laughs> that it's very similar to Earth toasters, 
the, the difference that. being when they shoot up, you know, sometimes they shoot over the top. I think that would be happen more often on the moon where the gravity is lower. Yeah, that's fun. Maybe thing. they go up one meter and then come down. <laughs> yeah. Make sure not fall on the ground either. You don't want to eat no. the sandwich that has fallen on the ground. Um, yeah, that's fun. You can have a lot of fun with actual serious science. But if you had to choose between Moon and Mars, which one would you want to live, Jakob? Well, assuming it both is safe, right? Assuming that you can get there, yes, and mm. safe. Well, can I bring my family? Can I bring my friends? Is it like, is it, what are we talking here? Is it a city of thousand person or is it just me in my lonely small capsule? No, I, I don't think we're going the Martian case. We're going for the actual, you have a base where there are many scientists. Many scientists. There. Yes, you, might, you may bring your family. Mars would be very exciting. It's pretty far away, but I think I'd rather go to the moon actually because the travel distance is so much shorter. I don't yes. really feel like sitting in a small capsule for a half a year traveling to Mars. <laughs> I'd rather get there quickly and spend some more time on the surface, jumping around in the lunar gravity. Maybe I'll learn to do a backflip. <laughs> must be a bit easier to learn when you're in low gravity. What would you choose? Earth? Well, no, not Earth. I'm not that boring. Um, Earth is good and it's beautiful, but it is fun to get out. Um, and it would be fun just the fact to be able to go outside of Earth and go look back and see Earth. I find that to be an amazing experience and I wish and hope to do that one day in my life. That would be my first on my back list to be able to go, it doesn't have to be far. Even if yeah. it takes just 10 minutes, I would be satisfied. <laughs> yes, experiencing weightlessness must be amazing. Because when you in a roller coaster, for example, when you feel that your butterflies in your stomach feel so nice, that's when you reach weightlessness. Imagine feeling that exciting feeling in your stomach all the time, just doing backflips and everything. Then I can just do a backflip. Just flying <laughs> or yeah. being in the air, sort of like flying. Yeah, I would absolutely do that. No, I would like Mars. to think many scenarios to find life what are we excluding at the moment thinking that that can't be there can't be life in those places so i think once we can actually in that sense say we can look at a star with a planetary system that we know a little bit about and i think it's an awful lot easier to at least exclude certain things so for example if we find a jupiter mass planet at say a few three to five times the earth's own distance so three or to five astronomical units with that radial velocity technique. And again, that's the sun, the star wobbling as the Jupiter orbits around it. Again, because of the shape of the wobble, we can figure out that that Jupiter's on an eccentric or circular orbit. So whenever we see a Jupiter at three to five astronomical units on an eccentricity orbit, more eccentric than perhaps 0.3 or 0.4, which just means the variation of the separation going in and out. So if it's on a very eccentric orbit, so like a comet, we know that will have stirred up the inner planets. So whenever we see an eccentric Jupiter, and quite a lot of the Jupiters we find around other stars are like that, then we can rule out having planets like Earth and Venus on circular orbits. 
In a more extreme case of that, we can also rule out having an Earth in some systems because we find a Jupiter almost at 1 AU. So even if a Jupiter were on a circular orbit at, say, 1.2 astronomical units, so 20% further away from its sun than our Earth, from the sun, that would also rule out having an Earth because a Jupiter that close would tug and pull on an Earth and it would lead it to be eccentric and it would uh, lead to crossing Jupiter's orbit and either colliding with Jupiter or getting ejected. So we can actually rule out places to have Earth-like orbits rather easily. And lots of planetary systems rule them out. So we see lots of planetary systems, but only a very small fraction of them, perhaps 5 or 10%, could even be remotely described as being like our own solar system. Because we find massive planets like Jupiter closer in and often on eccentric orbits. And in some systems, we see such extreme things. So for example, there's things called hot Jupiters. And it's a really hot Jupiter because what we see there is a Jupiter-mass planet, but actually found by this transit method where the planet blocks out the starlight. And transit method is good at finding planets closer in because you can perhaps imagine if you see it, transit it means it's edge on. And it's easier to be sort of edge on enough to block out the starlight the closer we are to the star. So transit method is super good at finding close in planets also because they have short orbital periods. So the transit repeats quite quickly. And what we find, actually, is about 1 in 100, 1 in 200, maybe, solar-like stars, stars like the Sun, actually have one of these hot Jupiters. So hot Jupiter means just a Jupiter-mass planet, but very much closer, and much, much closer to the star than even Mercury. So perhaps 5 or 10% of the Earth's own distance, something like that. And that's very weird, right, because we've got a planet very close to the star, and we don't think a Jupiter could form that close to the star the way we think Jupiter forms. And so what that means is we have lots of movement in a planetary system, lots of migration. So we start out with a Jupiter, maybe where our Jupiter is, five or ten times the Earth's sun distance. And something has happened in that system to move the Jupiter all the way right close to the star, but not into the star. And that's hard to explain, actually. So there's a number of ideas about that. It could be that they migrate in a disk. So a disk, as a planet moves through a disk, it gets a drag it's like, you know, wading through treacle or in a swamp, there's a drag force. And so it spirals inward slowly. It could also be that the planet-planet scattering that we get in the unstable phase can leave me with Jupiters on very eccentric orbits. So even if I'm sometimes five or ten astronomical units away, when I'm really very close to the star in this very eccentric, very elliptical orbit, I'm within only ten times the radius of the sun, a very small distance. And then I can raise tides. Just like the tidal interaction between the Earth and the Moon that keeps the Moon's face the same face to us all the time. So tides between the Jupiter and the Sun will mean that the Jupiter will be captured and gradually become more and more circular as its orbit shrinks. And that's how one way we think we might end up with these hot Jupiters. But if my Jupiter is migrating inwards in either of those two ways, it's bad news, right, for any Earth-like planets in between. So it could be that every time we see a hot Jupiter or also other planets close to the star, and Kepler finds lots and lots of lower mass planets, Neptunes to a few times the Earth, very close in, very common systems. Those common systems aren't remotely like our own solar system. You know, these systems, you find three or four Earths or Neptunes within 0.2 astronomical units, a fifth of the Earth's some distance. Again, much closer than the Venus or the Earth. And whenever we find those systems, it could be that it's very hard to make an Earth at 1 AU because all the material has migrated inwards. And so lots of planetary systems are not like the solar system, and they certainly can't have an Earth in the same way. And so we can rule out lots of systems. But it doesn't tell us much right now about the others, because an Earth itself is hard to find. And so we do see perhaps a few percent of systems 
the hint of solar systems. And what I mean by that is we see in a few cases a Jupiter at five to ten Earth sun distances on rather circular orbits. And we do certainly see lots of systems with multiple planets. So we know that planet formation is common. We know that making multiple planets is common. And so there's at least a hint there that there are systems, perhaps only a few percent of systems, that are really like the solar system, namely with gas giants like Jupiter, but still on circular orbits, which suggests they've not become unstable. They've not had this instability kicking out of the planets. And so if they have a quiet life, then the, the rock, the dust in the middle, has time to clump together and form Mars objects that then clump to form things like Earth and Venus, which we think happens on a much longer time scale. So the Earth is made perhaps after hundreds of millions of years or 100 million years, whereas Jupiter and Saturn form much sooner in a few million years when you start forming planets. So we need the quiet time after the Jupiter and Saturn's form to let the Earth's and Venus's form from clumping together the rock in the middle. And so it could be in a few percent of systems only. So where are we then? That's a few percent of the 10% of stars that are like the sun. Because low-mass stars seem to have some low-mass planets, but it's harder to form everything. And the most massive stars, the very massive stars that explode as supernovae, live such short lives, right? So it's no good being on a habitable planet around a star that's only going to live, say, 5 or 10 million years and explode as a supernova, because then we only have 5 or 10 million years for life to get going. And we know that's no good. So we have all of these challenges. It could be quite significant that we're living around a star where all this works very nicely for us. It sounds that the galaxy is a dangerous place to live. Many things that don't seem as we see here on our solar system makes us think that we're very much lucky to have gotten this way. But also we have seen suns that have more than one planet, as you say, that we have seen some hope that we are not just randomly working perfectly. That's there right. are other places. No, absolutely. So we, we think we understand broadly how the solar system formed. So to date, the systems that most look like the solar system are ones where we found a Jupiter mass, a massive gas giant, at broadly distances between Jupiter, perhaps towards Saturn. And over time, we'll find massive planets further away from their stars because with the radial velocity, we're measuring the wobble of the star and the star wobbles with the same period as the planet going around the orbit. And so that means that I have to follow the motion or the radial velocity, the Doppler effect of the spectrum of the star for the orbital period of the planet. So that means many, many years, right? So the Earth goes around at one year, but if I'm 10 times further away, that period is much longer, right? It's 30 years or so, roughly. And so for many years, I have to follow the radial velocities. So that means that over time, as we're looking at stars for longer, and people have been doing this broadly since the mid-90s, so a little over 20 years, it means that we will find progressively planets that are further and further away. The Doppler effect, the rate of velocities, it's simply a question of patience to find planets that are further away. And then we will find more and more solar-like systems, I think. But finding the Earth-like planets within them is going to be harder because the Earth's and Venus's are lower mass, and so their effect on the wobble will be lower. It could be that Gaia, the astrometric method, will help us here because that will tell us about some systems and it could be a combination of the astrometry with the Gaia satellite. So Gaia will tell us about lots of planetary systems, maybe many thousands, but we won't know about those until towards later stages of the Gaia data. So the early 20s, probably 2023 or so, we will learn about potentially thousands of planetary systems. And it could be a combination for some of the nearby stars of the Gaia information, perhaps combined with the radial velocity and the transit method, which will tell us different pieces of the puzzle about a particular planetary system. And so together we might then get some good candidates 
to take the spectrum of some of those planetary atmospheres with Ariel in the mid-future. That sounds great. We would learn a lot. I believe also that the technology is going towards improvement, so we might be able to, in the future, have the precision accurate enough to find Earth-like planets around the same distance as Earth is. Have we found any planets, not necessarily Earth-like size, that are around habitable zones of their stars? So it's an interesting question because, so there's a few hints at this, right? And it's very hard for the reasons we've discussed already. But for example, with Kepler satellite, with the transit method, some of the planets are almost Earth radius. And looking in habitable zones, again, the general definition of habitable zones is having liquid water. So you can work out from a given distance from a star what my surface temperature of the planet would be with a little bit of modelling of the atmosphere. And then you can determine whether I would have liquid water or not. So if it's too cold, it's ice. If it's too hot, it's boiled the water away. So there's a narrow range of surface temperatures. And so there's a few hints of planets in habitable zones. And there's a few hints of Earth-sized planets. The habitable zone ones that people most find, though, are around lower-mass stars. So low-mass stars are much more common than the sun. So sun-like stars are like 1 in 10 stars. Most stars are less massive than the sun, perhaps 10 or 20% the mass of the sun. And so some of the best examples of planets in habitable zones are around low-mass stars. But now there's an interesting R but, an interesting question with the low-mass stars. Because low-mass stars, so if I'm in the habitable zone of a low-mass star, I'm much, much closer to it because the star is less bright. Because a low-mass star is squeezing, the gravity is squeezing less on the middle of the star, so it's got a lower density and central temperature in the center of the star, which means a lower fusion rate. So it generates energy more slowly, it shines less brightly, I need to be closer to be in the habitable zone. But, crucially, observationally, lots of low-mass stars are very flary. What do I mean by that? So, so the sun has things like flares, coronal mass ejections, it has sunspots, it has activity. And we see that lots and lots and lots of low-mass stars are more active in that way. So it's an interesting ongoing question. Lots of ongoing questions in this field. This is one of them. Is it possible even to live around low-mass stars? Because if I'm living around a star which has these coronal mass ejections, so big flares, big variability in the star, that could be bad news for me. So these stars can have as many coronal mass ejection events in a day as we think the sun has in a thousand years or more. So it could be really tricky to live around one of these low-mass stars. And that's an interesting question. Is it possible to live around a low-mass star? In extremes, you know, you could live around lots of different things. There was an interesting idea some time ago, for example, that you can even live around a cooling white dwarf. So white dwarfs are the remnants of stars like the sun, something the size of the Earth, with half the mass of the sun or so. And it's just a hot thing cooling down, really. But it cools down for a long time. And so you could potentially, if material left over from the star clumped together to form planets again, very close to the white dwarf, you could even live around a white dwarf. And then imagine that if you lived around a white dwarf and you were an advanced civilization, now discovered observational astronomy, you might suddenly be surprised to find these mysterious, seemingly like planets around stars on their main sequence. Imagine that. You wouldn't understand it at all. Everyone knows that planets form around white dwarfs and suddenly you're finding planets before you become a white dwarf. How is that? So it could be that life is in very different places, in very different ways to we envisage, right? And they could have the same challenges looking at us as we do finding them. You mentioned something very interesting I haven't heard before, the white dwarf. But white dwarf live much shorter than the normal star, or how long do they take until they cool down? Good question. So a white dwarf is just the hot core cooling down. So the sun will evolve off what's called the main sequence today, 
It's where most stars are fusing hydrogen to helium. The sun becomes off to the main sequence a red giant, a big red thing. Then its envelope gets thinner and thinner, and it becomes something misleadingly called in English a planetary nebula. It looks like a planet in a telescope because you can see the, the gaseous blob, a circle of light. But what that really is, just a thin envelope of gas with the core in the middle that you can see. And when we lose that envelope of gas, we're left with the core. And that's a small, white-hot thing, a white dwarf. And those things will cool because they're very small. They're not very bright. They take a long time to cool. So in fact, some of them can really take a thousand million years to cool. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, it's possible. There's no particular evidence of life around white dwarfs. But it's an interesting point to make that you could potentially get life in quite unexpected places. And any advanced civilization around a white dwarf would certainly have quite a different view of planets and life than we would, right? Because they'd come to this idea that planets form after you've gone through this stellar evolution. They'd be able to observe main sequence stars in the night sky. They'd see red giants. They would understand that their white dwarf is descended from red giants, just like we do. But they would have assumed that all planets form after the red giant phase and would suddenly now be finding these transiting planets around main sequence stars and be confused. So it's kind of an interesting, quirky reflection, perhaps. It's not the thrust of the main exoplanet research right now. But it's an interesting point to make that you could really find life in different ways in different places. Another place that you could think of interesting to look at is around the center. There are so many stars there. Is it possible for planets to form there, or is it too crowded, too much activity for it to be an interesting place to look? So it's a good question. So probably a lot of your listeners will have in their mind's eye a view of a galaxy, a spiral galaxy like the Milky Way. So you can think of pictures, for example, of Andromeda or something. People can Google that M31, Andromeda Galaxy, see a nice image. And exactly as you say, the very middle of that galaxy is brighter. So we live kind of in the suburbs. If you look at a picture of Andromeda, we would live equivalently, because Andromeda is kind of like our own galaxy, we live sort of halfway out. But the middle is brighter. And the reason the middle is brighter is because there's more stars. Just like when you're landing at night over, a, you know, you're coming in to land in an airport near a big city, you see the big city because there's more streetlights. Further out, you see fewer streetlights, it's less bright. Middle of a galaxy, more light, more stars, packed in a volume. So there's something like a million times more stars in a cubic parsec or a few light years cubed than there is in the solar neighborhood. So indeed, that's a problem or a challenge to live there. So you probably plan it still form, we think, because the time scale, everything in astronomy, almost everything is about time scales. So planets form in a few million years, and that's probably short enough time that my star, even in the middle of the galaxy, hasn't been harassed by other stars in a few million years, probably, on average. But over the lifetime of a planet like the Earth, over our lifetime, stars will pass within that distance. So in places like the center of the galaxy, or there's things called globular star clusters. Again, listeners can look at that. 47 Takane is a nice one example. It's a million stars. It's like a galaxy in its own right. There's about 100 of these globular clusters orbiting in our galaxy. In the middle of those clusters, you can see pictures of them are very much brighter. Because again, there's about a million stars within a box of a light year on edge. And those stars pass within only a few stellar radii of each other in the core of 47 Tuck or in the center of the galaxy. So in the lifetime, our lifetime, or the lifetime of the solar system, in those places it would mean another star not only would have come in within the orbit of Pluto or Neptune, but actually would have passed within the orbit of Venus. And so when a star does that, what it means is it tugs on pulls on the planetary orbits in a really extreme way. It scatters lots of planets. And so you're not going to survive that. If the Earth's left bound to the Sun, it will be left on a very eccentric orbit. So you indeed don't want to be born in the middle of a stellar cluster like 47 Takane, 
or the center of our galaxy because there's just too much action going on. You really can't survive in those places because the flybys of stars will mess your orbit up and leave you on an eccentric orbit like a comet. Too cold, too hot periodically. You really can't live there. So we rule out the central galaxy and we look for life. Yeah, I think the important bit actually to realize about that, well, two things. Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. But also an important point to realize, which I didn't mention yet, so I should mention it now, is that actually it's really rather hard to measure some of these measurements we talked about today, particularly the radial velocities. So when I talk about the discoveries we've made using the radial velocity method, because I'm looking at very slight shifts in those wavelengths of the spectrum, I'm only looking at nearby stars because they're the bright stars. They're easier to study. And so what that means in practice is the distance between us and the center of the galaxy is something like 20,000 light years, give or take. When we talk about the radial velocity technique, we're only talking about stars within something like one or 200 light years, much, much closer to our little bit of the galaxy than the center of the galaxy. The transit method with Kepler looked a little bit further away. It was maybe two or 3,000 light years away in one direction. But the radial velocity studies are really very local. So if and when we discover evidence of life or first Earth-like planets, it will be around stars very local to us. So the centre of the galaxy is too far away. It's buried under dust and gas, so it's hard to study anyway. But we kind of know it wouldn't be a good place because it's too crowded. Think about life in the centre of our galaxy. It's more difficult. But if there was life that uh, came to be there, so you say it's hard to form there, but if it forms, it could be spread easier. Yeah, so maybe there's some kind of Goldilocks zone where you yeah. can spread easier. Well, that's right. So people have written papers, research articles, talking about stellar clusters in this way. So these globular star clusters I mentioned, there's about 100 of them in our galaxy. And people speculate that for some of the less crowded ones, like in the edges of them where they're less crowded, it would be a good place to be a civilization because hopping between stars would be relatively easier. But I think it's still very hard because you need to be lucky for some time, right? Because any of these close encounters will be really bad news for you. But it's certainly true that if you can survive in there, if you're nearby stars, if there's hundreds of stars within a light year or so, the nearest stars to us right in the solar neighborhood are a few light years away, and there's quite a few stars within tens of light years. But if I have many, many more stars close by, then it could be good indeed for the growth of civilizations. But it's probably really quite a tough environment because of these close encounters. So I think you want to be left alone because at least in our case, we're really clear that life took a very, very long time to get going, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to be messed about with close encounters, even on the time scale of hundreds or thousands of millions of years. And I want to touch a little bit on a question we had earlier, where we talked about planets being ejected from their native solar system and being captured later. Uh, I want to broaden that a little bit to other objects like asteroids. Mm. Recently we had uh, Oumuamua, yeah. an interstellar object passing through our solar system. That's right. And uh, how common is that? So at least it happens once, we know that, right? Yeah. Because this this object you mentioned and, and people can Google it and check it out. And there's been lots of talk about that, both in popular articles and also research articles. And in fact, with that particular object, because we know how quickly things orbit around the sun, so we can see something moving We know whether it's going to stay bound to the sun if it's orbiting in a bound way or if it's escaping, just like there's an escape speed from the Earth. If we launch a rocket fast enough, we know it will fly away from the Earth. And the asteroid you mentioned is moving fast enough that it's not bound to the solar system. It's literally passing through. And that tells us that this happens at least. Mm. And people have, have discussed that it could be quite often, right, because you could quite easily miss these objects, right, because depending where they're passing through the solar system, we might not notice it because... Asteroids are quite small things. It's easy to miss them if they're a long way away, even within the solar system. 
And so people actually, even now with Gaia, looking given the motion of this object, tracing back its motion, combined with the motion of stars that we get from this Gaia European Space Agency mission, which is measuring the motions of stars, essentially, in their distances. So you can sort of trace things back in time and attempt to figure out where this asteroid came from. And there's a few candidate stars where it could have come from. So indeed, asteroids can get ejected from uh, planetary systems, just like planets can, and as many more asteroids. And so it is conceivably possible then that an asteroid would get ejected from one stellar system, one planetary system, fly through the cosmos, and then come through our solar system or another solar system. And then if it's unlucky or lucky, depending on your view, strike one of the planets. So that's not very likely because, you know, the Earth is a lot smaller than the Earth-Sun distance. So I just pass through randomly the solar system at roughly one Earth-Sun distance. The chance of hitting the Earth is very small because the Earth is a lot smaller than that distance. But nonetheless, it's possible. So indeed, it is possible that asteroids have moved between planetary systems and actually even landed on planets if they strike them. So this can happen. And then the rate of these objects going through, people argue, is actually fairly high because they're a lot smaller, right? There's a lot of asteroids in the solar system. So even if a small fraction are ejected, then that's quite a lot of objects, many, many, many more times than there are number of stars, for example. And uh, one of these objects would be very interesting to sample, of course, because we cannot visit another solar system because yes. it's so far away. Oh, so. oh, yes, absolutely. Because even there's been studies, for example, of the idea that dust comes from nearby stars. And if you can study little little specks of dust in the same way, some fraction of micrometeorites might be dust from stellar winds from nearby stars. A star called Beta Pictoris, for example, it's got a big disk, big disk of asteroids. And so the idea is that that dust can come through interstellar space towards us. And by studying little bits of rock, we learn lots of things. We learn about the abundances of that planetary system, right? How much iron it's got, how much carbon oxygen. And so you can learn quite a lot about planetary formation of a different system. And so that would be very useful because, as you say, it's a lot easier to get a rock coming to us than us going to another stellar system and bringing back something. That's very hard, of course. We haven't done that yet because it's a long way to the nearest stars. And uh, I'm not entirely sure on the details on this, but uh, I believe that there was a moon of Saturn that was discovered orbiting the wrong direction. So that's right. Yeah. And one explanation could be that it was an interstellar object. Yeah, no, that's right. So when you see things, because essentially everything in the solar system goes the same way, and that makes sense, right? Because imagine you make... We talked earlier about the protoplanetary disk, and that's just a, a way of meaning when I form the sun, I have some material with some spin, and it forms a disk orbiting around, and all that material is going around in the same direction. And so it's very natural then, if we think about it, for moons to be going around the same direction around their stars, around their planets, sorry, as the planets go around the star. And so finding moons going completely the wrong way around is surprising. And so that's certainly an object that's being captured in a particular way, and perhaps... It's come in from, from outside the planetary system, but it might also be captured by some scattering things early on in the scattering process within the planetary system. But you're right that it certainly tells us something about the dynamical history of the system, and so it's very interesting. Right now you're doing with dynamical processes, but when you have been more current and active on the field of exoplanets, what was your focus of your research out of all these things that we have mentioned? So we particularly got into the exoplanet research because we do dynamical interactions, thinking about what happens in stellar clusters, for example, stars colliding. And we realized that stars getting close to stars, but not colliding, but passing close to the orbits of planets, would mess up the planetary systems. Mm -hmm. And we also knew that planets, planetary systems around stars form 
stars forming clusters in groups and so that early first hundred million years or so of a star's life would be in a crowded place so our question was to understand how that affected the planetary system so for example could it be rather than having a planetary system born with planets close together was it that they were all formed like the solar system because we know the solar system exists let's imagine all of planetary formation makes a solar system what i mean by that is a system where i have planets far enough apart that jupiter saturn uranus neptune the massive planets are far enough apart that they were stable, that planet-planet interactions did not cause eccentricities to grow. That would be great because it would explain the solar system. So let's imagine planet formation makes the solar system. Job done. But then we have to understand why we see so many Jupiters on eccentric orbits. So how do I make a system that's unstable? Sorry, this. Sorry, how do I make a system like the solar system that's stable to be unstable? What do I do? And what we then studied was how encounters in stellar clusters flyby stars passing close to my star could perturb the orbits and how that would change the orbits of the outer planets and ultimately destabilize the system so that's what we figured out we worked a lot on that so we do a lot of dynamical interactions in stellar clusters with a view to destabilizing the systems so rather than have my planetary system born with my planets close together so they become unstable on their own i make them unstable by either flying by and perturbing the orbits and we modeled that on a computer and we still do some of that Alternatively, I could take my solar system, the single star with planets around it, and then encounter what's called a binary. So binaries are pretty common. Most stars, or half of stars, are in binaries. And a binary just simply means one star orbiting another. The sun is not in a binary. But if I encounter a binary, my single star with planets encounters a binary in a birth environment, I can end up exchanging in and have a binary companion. And it turns out that my binary companion can over time perturb the orbits of the outer planets something called the Kozai-Lidoff effect. And listeners can Google it if they're interested, find out more about it. What it does basically for us is make the outer planets' orbits eccentric, like a comet's. Their orbits then cross the path of other orbits, and then they can have strong scattering and lead to the instabilities we talked about earlier. So we thought about that too and showed how birth environments in clusters can affect the likelihood of surviving. So it could be, and it's an ongoing mystery, but it could be, that all the eccentric planets we see have been made eccentric by instability, but that instability has been triggered not by an accident of birth where my planets are close together, but by flybys and exchanging into binaries in the birth environments. And we just got lucky. So we were born, we think, in a cluster of a few thousand stars, actually, the sun was, but we got lucky, relatively lucky, not outlandishly lucky, and avoided any of these close encounters or exchanging into binaries. And the subset that have those encounters are the ones that we then see with these eccentric planets. And we still do a lot of that today. We work in Lund both on exoplanets, but also broadly the effects of what goes on in these clustered environments at the centre of the galaxy, making black hole in the centre of the galaxy by collisions and merging stars potentially, and also looking at what makes exotic objects, things like merging stellar mass black holes or merging neutron star binaries in these so-called globular clusters like 47 Tuck. Having a binary star in a solar system, or binary solar system, how does that affect the habitable zone or the chances of life in that solar so system? So that's a good question. So people have studied that. So imagine you can have the Tatoon system, right? So for those of you who remember the first Star Wars, there's this planet they lived on, right, orbiting around two stars. So you've got these really cool sunsets occasionally with two stars. And so people see, interestingly that actually a lot of stellar binaries, so now, so stellar binary just means two stars orbiting each other, but imagine now the two stars are orbiting very close together. So their separation is much less than the Earth-Sun distance. 
So now I have two stars, I'm orbiting around both of them. So they're kind of in a tight orbit together, the two stars, and I'm orbiting further away from both. Then that can affect where the habitable zone is, right? Because now I have two stars rather than one. Alternatively, I can live around one of the stars. So imagine instead the two stars are much further apart. Say for the sake of argument, a hundred times the Earth's sun distance. And then I could orbit simply around one of them. And we find planets in both ways. We find planets orbiting one star, and we find planets orbiting both stars together in a tight binary. And in fact, we find quite a lot of stars. The frequency of having planets around these tight stellar binaries is actually almost as high or perhaps even higher than the frequency of planets around single stars, which is very interesting, perhaps surprising. But it certainly affects habitability. It would be quite complicated, right, if I have a, a system where I have two stars because then it affects the night and day. You know, the night and day cycles are very important for life, for all of us, for sleep and things, but for plant life too. And so being in a system with two stars will be really quite different, potentially. And, and life forms may exist in those systems. Have you found any planets that orbit, the, let's say, the inner star in a binary solar system with a, another star? Absolutely. Both kinds exist. People have found systems where you have a star and a planet or planetary systems orbiting around that star, and another star is much further away. And that gives us this Kozai-Lidoff effect, right? Because if I have a, another star further away, if everything is kind of what's called coplanar, means like imagine the orbits are like a, orbiting in the same level, they're all in, aligned, then not much happens. But if my stellar orbit, the thing that's much wider, is highly inclined, so it's tilted a lot, then there's this Kozai-Lidoff effect whereby the planet's made progressively more or less eccentric. And so the Kozai effect will actually destabilize planetary systems, potentially. It may be what's causing the hot Jupiters, because if I make a planet very eccentric, then it gets so close to its star that then tides interact between the star and the planet and capture the planet on a much tighter orbit. So stellar binary companions can matter. And it can be actually complicatedly that the following can happen. Imagine I'm born a solar system-like system around a single star in one of these denser birth environments. I can then encounter a stellar binary I exchange into the binary, so now I'm a planet orbiting the star, or planetary system orbiting one star, and I now have another star orbiting all of that, much further away, perhaps 300 or 1,000 times the Earth's sun distance. And I'm now in a binary, but then because I'm still in the crowded environment, I can stay that way for millions of years. That's long enough for this Kozai effect to make planets eccentric, to destabilize the system. Planets get ejected, ones left behind are more eccentric and more bound. But then I have another encounter, and it kicks me out of the binary. So I can see a single star today with eccentric Jupiters, but it could be that it formed around a single star, which then exchanged into a binary, which then had another encounter and broke the binary up, all in that dense birth environment. Dense birth environments mean things like, I don't know, the Orion Nebula Cluster. So these are places where maybe you have a few thousand stars in a box, roughly a light year or two on the side. So quite a lot more crowded than the solar neighborhood today. And you can have all these encounters. And you can study that. We've done that on a computer. And it could really be that lots of single stars today have been in binaries and the binary companion messed up the planetary systems. And that binary in turn got broken up and we see it as a single star today. But it's the binary companion that's done the work and messed up the system. Thinking of the field you're studying and all that we've mentioned here, the different aspects, Do you have any favorite planet that you like to study that would mirror these things, these effects? Oh, I don't have any one in mind particularly. I would, I would say more about what properties make planetary systems interesting. So I will answer a slightly different question, but explain why. So in a sense, what matters in understanding how planets form 
or understanding what the likelihood is of having an Earth-like planet. Actually, it's a handful of systems that are very well studied that can tell us a lot more information. Let me give you an example explaining that. So in the transit method, which again is when a star light gets diminished by a planet blocking out the light occasionally. So the planet just blocks out some of the starlight as it goes around every orbit. In those transit methods, detections, if I have a multiple system, then actually the planet-planet interaction, so interaction, say I have two planets and I'm measuring the transits of the inner planet. Because the outer planet interacts with the inner planet, the planetary forces, it can actually over time change the inner orbit of that planet. And what that means is actually the time it transits, the time when the, the planet, the inner planet gets in front of the star, changes a little bit. So even the little planet-planet interactions, even though they're a small fraction of the force from the sun, they can change when the transits happen. That's called transit time variations. Transit time just means when does the planet get in front of the star. And they're really good systems because if we have these TTVs, the transit time variations, then I can actually, or they, people who study this, in exquisite detail can measure the masses of the planets. Because the masses of the planets come into this calculation of how big a force one planet has on the other. So some of the best studied systems are actually ones that show these TTVs, these transit time variations. So it's an example of some kinds of systems that tell us a lot more than others. And so for us going forward, in, in, if you were to repeat this interview in, say, five or so years' time, when we've got all of the Gaia data, what I expect and predict is the following, is that out of all the thousands of systems that Gaia will find, there'll be perhaps five or ten really golden systems, the really valuable ones, the Rosetta Stones, if you will, because they'll be combining information from Gaia about certain orbits. And Gaia will tell us not only the size of the orbits, but their orientation on the sky, lots of information in the best cases together with, in the same system, a planet that happens to be transiting, or some good RV measurements. And so we'll learn a lot more about a small number of planetary systems. For example, if we have multiple planets, are they all in the same plane or highly inclined, which tell us about what's going on in that system. And so in that sense, I think a handful of systems will tell us a lot. And ultimately, probably, a small number of systems, perhaps only five or ten initially, will be studied in terms of taking very detailed atmospheres of what we think are like Earth-like planets. So unfortunately, we are running out of time here in this very interesting talk. So we're going to do our last uh, four interesting questions, not on the subject we're studying, but the more general questions. We have a lot of young listeners that maybe are studying in the gymnasium or in secondary school. So if they're interested in what we've been talking about here today, how do you recommend they go about it? Oh gosh, so I mentioned a few times various things that one can Google. That's fine. People can always look me up on the internet as well. So the easiest way to find me is I'm Melvin Davis at Lund Astronomy. So I work at the astronomy, the Department of Astronomy and Theoretical Physics here at Lund University. So simply Googling Melvin Davis Astronomy Lund will find my webpage. There's not a lot of public outreach material directly there, though some of my... Slightly more popular talks are on there via YouTube. YouTube's not a bad source for people in general. You can find things there as well. Googling things, I guess some of the key things we talked about today. There's quite a lot on Wikipedia that's quite good actually on the exoplanets information. That's generally kept pretty up to date and pretty clear. And also Googling things like the Kozai Lidoff radial velocities transit method. A lot of that on Wikipedia too. So quite a lot out there, I would say. And then in terms of space missions, again, Googling them, we have TESS, PLATO, KEOPS, and Kepler missions all have quite a lot of useful information out there to Google. 
But if people are listening and are curious to find out more about what we're doing in Lund, you can check us out. Lund Astronomy, we have our own webpage with lots of information about the sorts of research we're doing and the sorts of things that people do here, both in the terms of research and teaching. So I invite people to check us out. And that Lund Astronomy, Lund University Astronomy, Googling will find us very easily. Perfect. Now I'm imagining all the the kids <laughs> telling the teacher, yeah, but this professor, this scientist said Wikipedia is a good source. It can be. I think I'd, I'd be cautious, of course, but the, it does so happens. It does vary. And I would caution, of course, all the advice everyone gives with Wikipedia because anyone can edit it, which is a, both the strength and the weakness of it at the same time, right? So there's lots of input, lots of very energetic people keeping things up to date. So in my experience, generally, the Wikipedia entries about Planets around other stars about exoplanets are generally well kept, but a caution with Wikipedia. But if one Googles, as I said, the space missions, then you'll get their main web pages maintained by European Space Agency and the like. And then they're generally very good. I think you've already answered one of our other questions, which is where we can find you on the internet. Yeah, so again, Lund, Lund University Astronomy will find us simply Googling that and Googling me, Melvin Davis, Lund Astronomy, you will find me too. Do you have anything else you want to plug? No, I think I think I've done a lot of plugging, so we'll <laughs> leave it at that. Okay, so our last question: If you could live anywhere in space or visit anywhere in space, Ooh. where would you go? And uh, let's assume there's no technical limitations. Oh gosh, so. I have absolutely no idea. I'd avoid the center of the galaxy, as we talked about already. <laughs> I don't know, actually. Gosh, where would I like to go? I, I, I'm quite happy here. I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay on the Earth and send the robots because that's, that's gonna, okay. My easy, boring answer. Thank you so much for joining us. You're most welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Sweden's best space podcast. We have been learning about how to grow plants on other planetary surfaces. And we had a very interesting discussion with Professor Davies. You can find more episodes of our podcast at astronomiskundum.se slash rymdpodden or just try to google rymdpodden, hopefully you find it. Or you can find our episodes wherever you find your episode on Stitcher or on iTunes. In the next episode, we'll have another interesting talk with Mr. Ross Church. Another scientist from Lund University. We will be talking about black holes, gravitational waves, binary system of two stars or even two black holes how they can form and what that means for for example planets or in general physics until next time thank you for listening <laughs>